0: As we begin Advent, what better time for us to repent of our unbelief, to repent of the idols in our lives, to repent of the misplaced trust, and to claim the promises, the light of the beauty of Christ in your life, joy inexpressible, and freedom from your sin and guilt gone forever and ever. That's the hope of the gospel. That's the message of Christmas. Welcome to First and Foremost, a weekly broadcast of First Presbyterian Church in the heart of downtown Greenville. Senior Pastor Richard Gibbons invites you to join us as we study God's Word together and discover what is first and foremost in our lives. This morning our text is gonna be one of the great prophecies, very familiar prophecies about the coming of, of Christ into this world. So I want you to open your Bibles with me this morning to the ninth chapter of Isaiah, the ninth chapter of Isaiah. This is God's Word. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in darkness. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. He will honor it, he says. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Of those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor First of all, the darkness. What is this darkness that the people were walking in? Well, you can read earlier in Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 2, verse 5, where God speaking says, O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Let us walk in the light of the Lord. It was a light of the Lord that, that the people were not walking in. And we get a little clearer understanding of that because I think probably John even had this passage in mind when in his first epistle, he wrote these words, this is the message we've heard from him and declare to you that God is light. In him, there is no darkness. Now, you're getting a picture of what this darkness is? God is light. In him, there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with Him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. It's pretty simple. What this darkness was was the spiritual darkness of unbelief. They didn't believe, it was the spiritual darkness of compromise. They had compromised. It was the spiritual darkness of not walking in light of what God had revealed to them. It was the darkness. It was that spiritual darkness of unbelief. And that was the condition of these people. They were living in this time of unbelief, and there was darkness and gloom, and they were driven to despair. I mean, it was a terrible time. And yet in the midst of that, God comes to them. But here's the question, what was the problem here? Why was, there, why was there this darkness? And if you go back through Isaiah, you're going to find there were three major reasons. First of all, primary reason was very simple. It was unbelief. They just didn't believe God. And it started with the king. He didn't believe God. And I'm going to show you another sort of interesting passage, one of the messianic uh, passages that maybe you're not familiar with the context of, but it has to do with this King Ahaz who didn't believe God. Go back to chapter 7 with me. In chapter 7, God had come to the king, and he said to him, remember he was trying to be forced into this alliance of joining up with Syria and Israel, and they were putting the pressure on him. Okay, those two kingdoms, the kings of those two kingdoms, We're putting the pressure on on the king of of Judah to join in this alliance. But God speaks in verse 4. He says, Be careful, keep calm, and don't be afraid. Do not lose heart because of these two smoldering stubs of firewood. How about that for a description? Don't worry about them. Ahaz was not a man of belief. Neither were the people. And so God goes on to warn. If you'll, if you'll come on down to verse 9, he says, If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. And God, knowing that Ahaz, the king, was not a man of faith, God spoke to the king again, and he said this, verse 10, Ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths are the highest heights. Okay, Ahaz, you don't believe me? You're not going to take me at my word? Ask me for a sign. It can be the biggest sign you can imagine. The highest heights. Whatever you want to ask me, ask me and I'll do it. Well, old stubborn Ahaz turns back and look at what he says. Unbelievable. Look at what he says. Verse 12, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. And then Isaiah speaks. And Isaiah said, Hear now, you house of David. Is it not enough to try the patience of men? Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. And do you remember what the sign was? Pretty amazing. The Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin shall be with child. And will give birth to a son and you shall call his name Emmanuel now here's what I want you to see it's in the context of total unbelief that God acts it's in the total of it's in the context of total lack of trust that God steps in and he says okay you want to ask for a sign I'm gonna give you a sign and it's gonna be a it is gonna be a sign a virgin is going to be with child, and she's going to give birth, and you're going to call his name Emmanuel. Do you remember what that means? God with us. Okay, Ahaz, you won't believe me. Well, let me tell you, there's a sign coming, and this child is going to be born. This virgin's going to be with child, and this child's name is none other than God with us. Ahaz didn't believe, and neither did the people as you read on through this. Even in spite of all that, they didn't believe. They continued in their unbelief. Now, I want to stop here a minute. I want to talk about two things. I want to, first of all, talk about the unbelieving world. Okay, there's a world out here outside the walls of our church that's an unbelieving world, right? I mean, they're just people who don't believe. Quite, they just don't believe. And we understand that because Paul in 2 Corinthians puts it like this. He says, the God of this world has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. He's blinded their minds so that they can't see the light of the glory of God. That's an unbelieving world. But I want to come to us in this room. I, I believe every, I mean, goodness sakes, everybody here believes. I mean, you're here because you believe. But don't you even find in your own life that there are times that you simply don't trust God at His word? Do you ever find that? Just times in your life you don't believe. There are times in our lives we don't believe the gospel. Here's God who comes to us and God says, I am with you. You have nothing to fear. Why are we afraid then? Here's God who comes with us and we're, when we're facing tragedy and, and pain and suffering, and God comes to us and says, I will be with you. I will uphold you with my righteous, omnipotent hand. But we just simply don't believe it. We fall, we dissolve. It is so easy for us who are believers to not believe the gospel. You know, we don't even believe. Sometimes we don't believe how desperate we are for Jesus. You know, C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity says, the hardest people in the world to reach are nice people because they're so nice. We're nice people, right? We're good people. That's a problem. We start thinking we're better than we really are. And we don't see our desperate need for Jesus. We don't see, we, we look at ourselves and we compare ourselves with other people. We don't look too bad in comparing to other people, but deep down when we see ourselves in light of the perfection and beauty and holiness of God, it's then that we ought to be, it's then, look, it's then that we ought to go to our knees. It's then what, when Isaiah saw this in chapter six of Isaiah, what did he do? When he saw the holiness of God, what did he do? He said, Woe is me. When's the last time we said that? Woe is me. See, sometimes we just don't see our own sinfulness and, and we forget the wonder of the cross, the wonder of the cross. Look, if you're one of these people who you, you look and you think about your salvation, and say, Of course, God saved me. Of course, He saved me. I mean, in a sense, what we're saying is, Well, I deserve to be saved. <laughs> look, it's not until you get the gospel that when you think about your salvation, you say, It is a miracle that God saved me. It's a miracle. It's because we forget the gospel, right? We don't believe. That was their first problem. Now, it goes worse. Not only was there unbelief, but there was the problem of idolatry. Earlier, Isaiah had said, their land is full of idols. They bow down to the work of their hands. Listen to it. Idols are those things we feel like we absolutely have to have to give us meaning and significance. It are those things that we adore, that we serve, that we rely on more than we do on Jesus. And we all had these idols and these look, these idols will drive us into the ground because we become so dependent upon these idols to give us meaning, to give us significance, to give us value. You follow that? And let me tell you this, idols can be good things that we make ultimate things. Idols aren't necessarily bad in and of themselves, but when we make, when we make them ultimate things, things that we feel like we have to have to give us meaning in life, when we go there, we've crossed the line into idolatry. And we'll fill with them. we we'll are fill with them. We all have them. We all have them. And then there's one more here. By the way, idolatry is at the root of every sin. At the root of every sin. It's the failure to look to Jesus alone for our salvation. That's really what idolatry is all about. All right, misplaced trust. Here was the problem back then. The people were putting their trust in human alliances. They were putting their trust in their own efforts. They were putting their trust in their own efforts. Now, let me put it this way. Here's the great danger. Almost all of us, in fact, I'll say all of us, are tempted and often drawn away from the gospel Back to religion. Now, stay with me a minute. Almost all of us at one time or another are drawn away from the gospel into religion. Let me try to define what I mean by this. Religion is about what we do. The gospel is about what God has done for us. Follow that? Religion is what we do. The gospel is what God has done for us. What God in Christianity does is he reaches out in the midst of darkness and despair and gloom and unbelief. God acts. Let me put it this way. There is an order to the gospel. Now look, th- look this is the most essential thing I'm going to say this morning that really helps us get what what Christianity is and what the gospel is really all about. This is the most important thing. There's an order to the gospel. Now, here's the way it works. Here's what the gospel says. The gospel says, we are loved and accepted by God solely on the basis of what Jesus Christ has done for us. And as a result of that, out of love and gratitude, we want to seek to honor him with a life of obedience. Did you follow that? Let me say it again. What the gospel says is that we're loved and accepted by God solely on the basis of the work that Jesus has done for us so that as a result, we will desire out of gratitude and love to live a life of obedience. Now here's what religion says. Religion says it's the opposite. Religion says I have to live this certain way, that's what we call moralism, legalism, religion, however you want to put it, it's dependent upon me to do certain things. If I do those certain things, God owes me, and therefore he will accept me and he will love me. You follow that? That's religion. That's religion. Religion says, I've got to do it, I've got to work for it, I've got to earn it, and If I do, then God will like me. God will accept me. God will love me. The gospel blows that away entirely. The gospel says just the opposite. Look, here's what the gospel says. You are loved, and you are accepted by God because of what Jesus did in your behalf. And as a result of that, my desire is to want to live for him, right? You see what I mean by misplaced trust? Misplaced trust means I'm trusting in my religion. I'm trusting in in my moralism. I'm trusting in my legalism. I'm trusting whatever ism you've got. Rather than coming to that place, it's Jesus alone. And then when we get it, things are going to change. Let me show you what happens. Remember? that That was why they were in the darkness. Now let me take you to the next step here. And that is what hope did God give them? Now, you've got the picture here. What hope did God give them? Three things, light, joy, and freedom. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Now, I want you to see this. These people had not gotten it right They weren't all of a sudden now turning and following God, trying to earn it. No, they were living in disobedience. They were living, look, they were living in disobedience and they weren't trusting God. And yet God says, the people who are walking in that darkness, I'm sending light to them. They lived in darkness, but now light has come. What did he mean by that? He's talking about truth and meaning. Now I'm going to send what Francis Schaeffer used to call true truth. I'm going to give them what the real truth is. When the light of God comes into your life and you see Jesus in his beauty, you're going to find a joy that's inexpressible, a joy that's unexplainable, this deep inward sense of joy that God produces in your life. And Isaiah puts it in these terms back in that day and time. He says, it's going to be like the joy at harvest time when the harvest comes in and there's this bountiful harvest and everybody is rejoicing. Or when the battle's over and the spoils of war are being divided and people rejoice, the battle's over. It's that deep inward joy that God produces within us. It's a joy that is not dependent on circumstances. Listen, follow that. It's a joy that's not dependent upon circumstance. Happiness is dependent upon circumstances. Joy is this deep inward, this deep inward sense that you're loved and that you're with him and that there is nothing that can separate you from his love in Jesus Christ and regardless of what you face. Richard preached on this in Philippians not long ago. He talked about Paul having that joy even in the midst of his imprisonment. Rejoice in the Lord. Again, I say rejoice. Remember his sermon? And he made the point that there's joy wasn't dependent on his circumstances. It was this deep inward joy. And once you've seen Jesus and his beauty, you're going to find that joy. And I'm going to tell you, if you're here this morning and you don't know it, You'll never find the kind of joy I'm talking about apart from seeing the beauty of Jesus in your life, never. There is no earthly happiness that can ever touch the kind of joy that I'm talking about. And how is he going to bring that about? Here's the message of Christmas. Here it is. Verse 6, look at it. Look at the promise for to us a child is born. Do you see this? All of that depends on the birth of this child. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Do you see it? God broke through the darkness. God broke through the unbelief. God acted in spirit bite up, and he sends his son. Do you see? Salvation is all the work of God. It's God's grace. That's the message of Christmas. And it's about a relationship with him. He comes in the person of his son, one that we can have fellowship with, one that we can know. Years later, after this promise, the people walking in darkness saw the great light. That child was born in the world. Angels announced his birth, and shepherds came to worship him. And in the prologue of his gospel, John wrote, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the Lord Jesus said to his people then, and he says to us now, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. This morning, as we begin Advent, what better time for us to repent of our unbelief, to repent of the idols in our lives, to repent of the misplaced trust, and to claim the promises, the light of the beauty of Christ in your life, joy inexpressible, and freedom from your sin and guilt, gone forever and ever. That's the hope of the gospel. That's the message of Christmas. Let's pray. This morning, Lord, as we think of these things, I pray, first of all, that we would would see that light that you're talking about. I pray that you promised that you would show us the light. You promised that that light would shine in darkness. That the light of the glory of God would be revealed to us as we see the beauty of our Savior, Jesus And I pray this morning that we would be captivated with him, that we would be in awe of him, that we would stand amazed at the extent of his love for us and that we would find that deep joy and freedom that the gospel promises us through him alone. And God, we come this morning in repentance. We repent of our unbelief, of not trusting you. Right now, there are people in this room who know they haven't been trusting you. God, we repent of that. And we all have our idols. And God, we repent of our idolatry. And our misplaced trust especially when we trust in our own goodness. God, we repent and we turn to Jesus and we see the beauty of his glory as we behold him, our king, our savior, our shepherd. We give you thanks for the hope of the gospel and for the message of Christmas. For we make this prayer in the name of Jesus our Savior. The Music and Worship Arts Ministry of First Presbyterian Church of Greenville presents Christmas at First, Sunday, December 4th at 6.30 p.m. in the Sanctuary, featuring soloists from the Metropolitan Opera, New York City Opera, and regional favorites, a full orchestra including members of the South Carolina Philharmonic, Greenville Symphony, and Alabama Symphony, and First Presbyterian Church's children's, youth, and adult choirs. Admission is free and open to the public. For more details, visit firstpressgreenville.org.